Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We'll chat with Pete Abraham from the Boston Globe about the Red Sox in just a little bit, but it's now 1255 late after the Celtics-Lakers game, which was one of the craziest regular season games I've seen in recent history as the Celtics end up pulling this one out 122 to 118 in overtime, but some of the craziest swings you will ever see. I mean, I'm trying to think about the wildest Celtics games I've seen recently. I go back to the game they played a couple of years ago against the Rockets when they still had James Harden and Chris Paul and Marcus Smart basically found a way to take a couple of late charges on Harden. Like that was crazy. The garden was electric, but this was wild for so many different reasons. You think about the fact that at one point during this game, the Celtics had an 84 to 65 lead with five minutes and 40 seconds left in the third quarter. And somehow the Lakers go on a remarkable 27 to four run. And one of the issues in this game was the non Tatum minutes, which last year was such an issue. We're an issue tonight when Tatum went to the bench. That's when the Lakers started to go on their run. But after that, the Celtics were able to win this game. They outscored the Lakers 32 to 20 after the Lakers have that 98 to 90 lead. But crazy swings in this game. And look, there are certainly issues for the Celtics in this game that we'll get into in greater detail here in just a little bit. But the most impressive thing to me about this game was Jason Tatum, because Jason Tatum, this is one of the things that I was asking for on this road trip is if you think about it, yeah, they were great against the Phoenix Suns last Wednesday night. But then they get their ass kicked by the Golden State Warriors, and Steph Curry is by far the best player on the court, and Klay Thompson was better than Jason Tatum. And the same thing transpired. We talked about it on the show after the Monday Night Football game and after the Clippers game, where Kawhi was better than Tatum, and Paul George was better than Tatum. And Tatum has been one of the frontrunners for the MVP all season long, and we saw that in full display. Because Tatum in December had started to get a little bit tired. Six games, shooting just 39.7% from the field, entering tonight, 31 0.3% from deep and 22.8 points per game. Well, first half, he comes out 24 points, eight of 18, three of seven. And that's all good. You love to see it. 
But what I liked more than anything else is what he did to close out the game, what he did to force overtime, right? And after the game, he's doing that interview with Chris Haynes. He says, I feel like I'm the best player when I step on the court. That's what tells you where Jason Tatum feels like, okay, at this particular point in time, I am the best player in the world. And we wanted him to prove it on the road trip. And we know he made it to the finals last year and all that. And tonight was just evidence. Like he's on a different level right now than LeBron James is. Now, LeBron is the greatest player of his generation and all that, but he's not the same athlete. He played well tonight. Anthony Davis was really good for them tonight, although he got really tired late. Of course, he missed those critical free throws. But Jason Tatum was without question, you can't dispute it, the best player on the floor tonight. 44 points, 15 of 29, which is what, 51.7%, 5 of 10 from three-point territory, 9 of 10 from the free throw line, 9 rebounds, 8 assists. And it was the big baskets late that stuck out to me. It's 98 to 90 with 624 left. Tatum, transition 3, keeps him in the game, 98-93. It's 106 to 98. Tatum goes right at LeBron James, wanted to dunk on his head, gets to the line, hits the two free throws, cuts it to 106 to 100. Oh man, then it's 108 to 100. Tatum, just a beautiful step back three to make it 108 to 103. 110, 105. Smart hits the three, they leave him wide open, but after that, we all know what happened. Anthony Davis goes to the free throw line, a chance to end the game with the Lakers. He misses both of them. Jason Tatum goes back down the other end, and what did he do? What did he do? No, there was no passing the ball. There was no, hey, I got to get my guys involved. Let's run some sort of set. No, it was fuck that shit. I'm going at LeBron. And that was, was the most beautiful thing about everything that happened there. He went right at LeBron James. And he hits a beautiful fadeaway jump shot over LeBron to tie the game up 110-110, send it to overtime essentially. Now, after that, we all know that they would have their opportunity. LeBron ends up taking a dumb shot. It goes to overtime. And in overtime, the Celtics had a really good strategy, but and I'll get to that in a second, but just getting back to the Tatum portion of this, that's what I loved more so than anything else in this night, is just to see Tatum put on a show like that, because look, you cannot blow that type of lead against the Lakers. I mean, that is really inexcusable to let the Lakers back in the game to the point where you really should have lost if it isn't for Anthony Davis not being able to take critical free throws at the end of the game. But the fact that Tatum had this mentality late in the game where it was almost predatorial. The last time I remember this, now they've been blowing teams out all season long. But remember, season on the line, game six against Milwaukee, Tatum goes into Giannis's house. He has 46 points. We know he's capable of these type of games. There's a reason he's one of the favorites right now for the MVP. In fact, he's number two if you look at the odds and all that. But if you just think about what he did all those big plays late, and the fact that I love that he said, I want to go at LeBron. He went at LeBron all night long. And in the clutch, he wanted to go at LeBron. It was kind of like one of these things where we look at LeBron and he's obviously, as we mentioned earlier, the best player of his generation, but he's the standard for wings in the NBA, right? And I know that he's not playing at the same level last year, like, or this year, rather, some of his numbers. I mean, worst two-point percentage in half a decade, worst Field goal percentage in almost his rookie year. I mean, he's had some really bad numbers. He's taken 4.8 free throws a game. Like, I understand all that. But that's the guy where Tatum grew up watching LeBron James. I know he's a Kobe guy, but LeBron is the standard in the league. And for Tatum now to finally be at the point in his career where he said, okay, I'm better than you. And I want to prove that I'm better than you. And I'm going to out-execute you down the stretch. And Tatum's game is just, man, when he's hitting those type of shots, it's just so pretty to watch. And it is nice to have one of those guys. Like, the Celtics have that guy 
where you know for the next five, six, seven, eight years, whatever it is, and we all know that Tatum signed that max extension a couple of years ago, you have the guy that most nights is going to be the best player on the floor. And look, I understand he did not play well against the Warriors. He did not play well against the Clippers. But most of the time when you're entering the game, you feel like you have the advantage. How many games are you going to play this year where you don't feel like you have the best player on the floor entering the game? Maybe Giannis. I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, we had this conversation about John Morant, Tatum's a wing, more important position, more impactful position, and John Morant isn't near the defender that Jason Tatum is. And you also think about like a guy like Luka, he doesn't give you that same effort on the defensive end, right? When you look at Tatum and what he can do from a defensive perspective, he is predatorial. Like Tatum is an all NBA caliber defender right now. Tatum right now with the absence of Rob Williams, I've said this multiple times, He's been the best defender on this team so far this year for the Celtics. And that's not an indictment on Marcus or Derek White or any of these other guys the Celtics have that are really good defenders. Just Tatum has been more impactful for all those guys because he can guard up. Now, Marcus Smart can guard up too, but he doesn't have the shot blocking ability that a guy like Jason Tatum has. And we just saw tonight after a couple of tough games here, Tatum bounces back, national TV, TNT. He proves to everybody that, hey, right now, if we're looking at the standard for wings in the NBA... I'm that guy. Now, the other thing that I found interesting is Charles Barkley at halftime said there is a conspiracy that the Lakers are always on TV. Now, we as Boston fans get sick of that shit like the Lakers are always on, but then they come back, which kind of made Chuck look bad. But I did think it was funny. He called it a conspiracy. Not really the right terminology there. It's just they're trying to get TV ratings. And at times, I don't know why they continue to put the Lakers on TV, but this is a good one tonight. And look, like the Anthony Davis thing, he wore down late. He missed the free throws. He took a lazy three. And over time, you could tell that that guy was just completely cooked by the end of the game there. And the thing that I would come back to is when you look at the Davis situation, especially in this game tonight, you could tell they really needed Robert Williams. They really needed Al Horford. They really didn't have an answer for Anthony Davis whatsoever in this game. It was really an issue for the Celtics trying to defend him. But I will acknowledge, like, when you get that matchup again, you're going to have at least one of your bigs back, probably both of your bigs backs, depending on when you get the Lakers again, I don't have the schedule in front of me right now, but you just feel like, okay, like Anthony Davis was going to get his tonight. You were just going to have to take advantage of some of the other mismatches that you had on the other side of the floor. And the Celtics certainly did. All right. So what I did find interesting was the overtime strategy from the Celtics. And I don't know about you, but I felt like, okay, it's 110-110. The Celtics have that furious comeback to force it into overtime. There's no way they're losing this, right? Didn't you feel like they had all the energy? And remember, They mentioned on the broadcast tonight that Anthony Davis and LeBron, at one point, they wanted to take them out. Darvin Ham did. They said, no, let us play. And you could tell in overtime they had nothing left. They had nothing left whatsoever. But the Celtics came up with a really interesting strategy is, hey, just let Russell Westbrook shoot. We're not going to cover him. Luke Cornett is not even covering Russell Westbrook. He's just hanging out in the paint and he's mucking things up. So Russell Westbrook, just shoot all you want. And then the other end, go attack Reeves. So you look at some of these possessions at overtime. So To start things off, Westbrook did beat Jalen, 112-110, gets to the bucket. Then Jalen misses a three, and on a cross match, Russell Westbrook gets to the basket, makes it 114-110. But after that, 309 left, Smart finds Grant, 115-114. That was after Marcus Smart hit a floater to cut it to two. Smart hit some big shots in this game tonight, by the way. But then you go next possession down the floor, 227 left. Jalen goes right at Reeves where this is a smart matchup from an isolation perspective. Remember so many times last year, we would say, hey, the ISO ball, it's got to go. Well, this was an instance tonight where you wanted to get in an isolation situation, right? Where Jalen got that matchup with Reeves, he was just waving guys off. And you could see Tatum telling the guys to go to the other side too, because they knew that's the matchup they wanted. 
Reeves commits the foul. Jalen gets to the free throw line. He hits both free throws. Next possession down the court, they dare Russell Westbrook to shoot a three. He does. I mean, I don't know. This guy just does it. He doesn't like eat up the th- eat up the space like we've seen so many times in the past. Remember when Rondo played here and teams would do that to Rondo? Rondo would eat up the space. Russell Westbrook was content to take that sh- shot, bricks it. I feel like the worst thing that happened to him is he when he hit that three earlier. 118-114 left. Tatum gets the Reeves matchup, right? Where they set a screen so Tatum can get that matchup. What does he do? Of course, step back over Reeves, makes it 119 to 114. Next trip down the the court for the Lakers, Russell Westbrook took another three. So they played right into the hands of the Celtics. And then next trip down the floor, Jalen hits a three, basically puts it out of reach to take a 122-114 lead. So I did feel like from a tactical perspective, that was really a good strategy from the Celtics. Where so many times, like I've asked Joe Mazzulla to come up with more things in terms of what he's doing strategically. And tonight he did. I mean, they just said, hey, we're not going to cover Russell Westbrook in overtime. Let him shoot. And on the other side, Reeves is a really weak defender. I mean, he that guy, by the way, not only is a bad defender, he commits some boneheaded fouls. Like when he had when Jalen was going to the basket there, I should say Jalen was setting himself up for a step back. But I don't know why you commit a foul there. That guy has some really dumbfounding fouls. So they Definitely took advantage of that. So those are the big things tonight. That the Celtics showed some heart. This would have been a really bad loss. You lose three in a row after the way that you lost to Golden State. After the way that you lost to the Clippers, you needed to bounce back and get a win tonight. And your best player who has had a tough December for his standards, for anybody else in the league, you'd say like, okay, the guy's averaging 22 and nine rebounds. He's having a pretty good December. But for most people, that would be a good month. For Jason Tatum, based on what he did in October, and especially what he did in November, the numbers had come down. And that is one thing I'll say about Joe Missoula. This is why you don't play. T- well, I guess Tatum, it didn't affect him. But the rest of the starters, why they played so many minutes last night against the Clippers made no sense to me whatsoever. But anyway, the fact that this team gets a critical win, you feel better about going home. And you look at the schedule coming up, by the way, for the Celtics team. It is just unbelievably soft the rest of the month. So you end up going four and two on the road trip, which is obviously great. Rest of December, you have six games all at home. Orlando, Orlando, by the way, that second Orlando is Friday night. I would advise if you're thinking about going to Celtics game, go on Friday night. Friday night, the Garden is absolutely electric. Indiana, Minnesota, Milwaukee, and then you got that, of course, circled on Christmas Day, and then Houston to end the month. So the Celtics, their schedule does lighten up a bit after this tough road trip that, look, I understand that the Clippers had been dealing with injuries, but their guys are back. The Warriors, of course, they want to prove a point on national TV. You played a Nets team that, of course, you thought, okay, they're starting to play a little bit better. They got Kyrie back and all that. Phoenix was, at the time, the number one seed in the West. So this wasn't in in the Lakers that played better. Although they struggled a little bit, they've sort of turned their season around. We're talking about them now being in the market to possibly make some trades. So four and two, I mean, you would take it, right? I mean, like I get we have these incredibly high standards for this team right now because of the way they started the season. But you'll take four and two, especially with that schedule coming up. Now, one thing that really irritated you in this game, of course, letting the Lakers come back. We established that at the beginning, but the turnovers, right? So if you look at the Celtics in this game tonight, the Lakers scored, and I just went in regulation because if you take it out of regulation, it gets skewed. The Lakers scored 25 points off the Celtics turnovers tonight. And if you look at it on the season... The Raptors lead the league, scoring 21.7 points off their opponents' turnovers. The Celtics have been the best, where they are only giving up 15.1 points per game off their turnovers. The Rockets are last to 22. The Celtics tonight are 25. And they had some lazy turnovers in this game. Jalen Brown had a couple of those ones that reminded you of the postseason last year. 
The other one is the points in the paint. So the Lakers in this game tonight score 60 points in the paint in regulation. On the season, the Grizzlies lead the league at 57.4. The Lakers are third, by the way, at 56.6. You knew this is going to be something that the Lakers were going to try to do tonight, especially with the absences of Al Horford and Robert Williams still not in the fold. And Blake Griffin, we can all acknowledge that guy was tired. This is the first time he's played a back-to-back all season long. You could tell he had nothing left of the fourth quarter whatsoever. And it did work out to put Cornette into the game. So that's something where, yeah, I'm a little bit concerned about it. But overall, when the Celtics get their bigs back, Anthony Davis is not going to have that type of game. A normal big is not going to have that type of game against the Celtics defense. So as bad as it was at times and the comeback that the Lakers had, you just can't let that shit happen. All in all, I feel like this is sort of a character building win for the Celtics that they find a way to win this game. And I do feel like, and it's going to sound crazy because he's had such a great season, Tatum needed that game. Tatum needed that game on national TV after the recent struggles. All right, a couple of other things I wanted to point out in this game. So if you look at what the Celtics did, this is why I keep coming back to the Celtics need to keep taking threes, even though they weren't hitting threes in the previous two games. They outscored the Lakers tonight, 57 to 24 from three-point territory. That's 33 points. That's why you were able to manage getting back into this game. And if you just look at these numbers on the Celtics, it's ridiculous. Brogdon came into Wednesday 48.4% from three, second second in the NBA behind Damian Lee. Horford is fifth at 46.6. Grant is eighth at 45.8. And the catch and shoot numbers are unbelievable. Brogdon's at 47.2%, which in Indiana, he didn't get a lot of catch and shoot threes because he had to create so so much offense. He's been... Good his entire career from a catch-and-shoot perspective, and he's been great this year. Horford, 46% on catch-and-shoot threes. Hauser's at 45%. Although the Hauser thing, he has not been great lately. He really hasn't. He's not shot the ball like we saw earlier this season. Grant's at 44.4%. White's at 43%. Tatum's at 41.1%. And Pritchard, who of course didn't play tonight, is at 40%. And the Celtics are getting good threes. 29.8 catch-and-shoot threes per game, which is first in the NBA. And they're second when it comes to their percentage at 40.6%. So the threes are good. And we saw tonight the difference that that made in the game. And the first quarter, even though the Celtics stepped off the gas, I did feel like they came out with a much better effort in the first quarter than they did against the Clippers. You look at the Clippers in that first quarter. They had 29 points. They were 11 of 22 from the field, 50%. The Lakers tonight, they were 8 of 18 from the field, so 44.4%. And 13 of their 24 points were Anthony Davis. Nobody else could get going whatsoever for that team. So that's the thing that jumps out to me is at least they came with the effort early. Now, you got to be better as it pertains to the third quarter. I mean, that was embarrassing. But all in all, I feel like this is a huge win for the Celtics just because of, yeah, you got up big, you dealt with adversity, you got punched in the mouth, you didn't fight back against the Warriors, you didn't fight back against the Clippers, and tonight against the Lakers, you said, this is not happening again. We are going to win this game, and good thing for the Celtics is they did win this game. All right, so I did want to get to this real quickly as well because it feels like it's interesting to me right now because the four GMs in town, the guys making the decisions with these teams, it's insane to me because last year Bill Belichick was the executive of the year and you felt like, okay, he's on to something here, right? Judon was a defensive player of the year candidate the majority of the year before the bye week. He found Mack as his next quarterback Christian Barmore looked like a massive hit in the draft. And look, he's dealing with an injury right now. Ramondre Stevenson was a hit. And the Pats came out of the bye week last year, the number one seed in the AFC. And Bill, you felt like, oh my God, like Bill's back, man. He's back to being the guy that we remember. And then it got ugly. 
And yes, they had on some draft picks. When you're talking about Marcus Jones, you're talking about Jack Jones, you're talking about Bailey Zappi, who won you a couple of games. But Bill screwed up the offensive play calling situation. He did not add an elite weapon. And his offensive line is a complete mess. And then you look at this offense has taken a massive step backwards. And that's on Bill. The weapons aren't there. The line isn't there. The play caller sucks. And he isn't qualified in Matt Patricia. And the quarterback now we're questioning, is Mac that guy? So basically, in less than a year, Bill went from, we're thinking that, okay, Bill's going to start this new thing with the Patriots. They found their quarterback. It feels like they're heading in the right direction to now. The offense is one of the worst in the NFL. And you don't trust Bill right now because he doesn't have the weapons. And he made a decision to name Matt Patricia the play caller, which has clearly hindered the progress of not only the quarterback, but the organization in general. Mac's the most important player in this organization, and they've done everything to allow Mac to fail. And then there's Hein Bloom, where no one's approval rating is lower right now. He just let Bogarts go. But you go back to 2021, he got criticized for the Schwarber move at the deadline, but it worked out. He was the best bat that moved. He changed their lineup. And Robles actually turned out to be good for them, right? And you think about it, final 13 and two-thirds innings for Robles last season, doesn't give up a run. You don't get to the playoffs without Robles in 2021, which is crazy to think about, but it's actually true. And this was coming off a great offseason where they found Whitlock in the Rule 5 draft, who turned out to be one of the best relievers in baseball. Kike Hernandez was an unbelievable contract, two for 14. He turned out to be one of the best defensive center fielders in the game. And remember what he did in the postseason, hit the crap out of the ball. And then they traded for Renfro, of course, who hit 30 bombs last season. You felt like, okay, this guy kind of knows what he's doing. Even after everything that transpired with Mookie, et cetera, it feels like, all right, maybe Heimblum's onto something here. Not to say that anybody's going to be Mookie, but maybe they found th- some things. And this guy knows what he's doing since then. Trades Renfro doesn't replace him. He lets Schwarber go. He signs Diekman. And at the deadline, he middles. He gets nothing for J.D. Martinez. He doesn't trade him. He just trades away Christian Vasquez for a couple of prospects. Now, you did bring back Reese McGuire, actually played well for the Red Sox, but you finished last in the division, and now you're dealing with Devers not being signed and this whole situation with who the hell is going to play shortstop for the Red Sox next season. So his approval rating went from sky high when they got to the ALCS last year to what the hell is this guy doing and should he be the GM of the Red Sox anymore, right? And then there's Don Sweeney. Now, he did have the Mitchell Miller situation, which was a mess, but think back to the end of last season. They fire Bruce Cassidy. And a lot of us, myself included, looked at it and said, right, maybe it's Don Sweeney that needs to get his walking papers, not Bruce Cassidy. Bruce Cassidy took this team to the cup. I don't think it's Bruce Cassidy's fault. And everyone liked to pick on Don Sweeney for that 2015 draft because they take Zaboral, DeBrus, Seneshin all over Barzell, who, of course, the Bruins win that game tonight, which is an incredible game, especially the shootout was entertaining as hell. But nonetheless, that was something he got criticized and he continues to get criticized for that. But what we found out is he was right to fire Cassidy. The offense is incredible. The defenseman, of course, now involved in the rush more. Hampus Lindholm has now developed into a Norris Trophy candidate, if you will, because of the system that Jim Montgomery's put into place. And Jim Montgomery, people criticized that decision. Why are they bringing in this guy? Remember, that was a controversial hiring, if you will. Jake DeBrus is playing the best hockey of his career. And David Krejci wanted to come back. And these are all things that have happened since they hired Jim Montgomery. Don Sweeney gets credit for that. And if you look at his trade deadlines, Charlie Coyle, huge in 19. He was huge in the playoffs for them, the run to the cup. Taylor Hall in 2021 for Curtis Lazar, Anders Bjork, and a second rounder. That's a Hart Trophy winner that has been really good for the 
Bees this year. And then you look at the 2022 deadline, trade for Lindholm, a first, two seconds, Vakaninen and John Moore. You do that again in a second based on what you've got out of Lindholm. You needed another stud defenseman to go along with McAvoy. And remember, he signed Allmark prior to 2021. And right now he leads the NHL in save percentage and goals against. He's been tremendous. So the results are there. I know we shit on him a lot, but man, it's tough to argue with what he's been able to do over the past few years. So he went from, hey, everybody, they should be firing Don Sweeney, not Bruce Cassidy, to holy shit. He was actually right about all this. And then there's Brad Stevens, where remember, when he got the job, it was like, hold on. And I, I'll be the first to admit, I was in this camp too, like, this is the, we're definitely sure this is the guy. Like, we're not going to open this up. Now, I was never in the camp of, hey, they're just doing it because they're already paying Brad. I, I never bought into that theory whatsoever. It just felt like, okay, you should probably open it up to more people. Remember, Mannix had the report that Sam Presti would have been interested in the job. So there was questions about him right away. But then you think about it. He hires Ime. He trades for Al, who people thought that Al could be done after the Philadelphia stint was ugly. He did play better in Oklahoma City, but barely played 27 games. And they dumped Kemba's contract and a first round pick. And people thought they weren't going to get much out of Al. They were wrong. They've now extended Al Horford, okay? And remember, the Celtics started out like crap. The one mistake that Brad made was the Schroeder signing. It didn't really work out whatsoever. They get rid of him. They get White at the deadline, who fits perfect with this team. Ime turns them around. They're the best team in the NBA the second half of the season. They're the best defense all season long. And Ime leads them to the final. So it looks like Ime is a slam dunk hire. And then even this year, prior to the season, you trade for Brogdon. I like the Gallinari signing. Of course, he's injured. But Brogdon, you only give up a first round pick, essentially, and like Aaron Neesmith. Like, and the other guys don't really matter in this deal. But then after that, shit hits the fan with the Ime situation. And he hires Missoula. And we're questioning, well, is Missoula the right guy, right? I mean, he wasn't even on the front row, right? You're talking about Damon Stoudemire's there. Ben Sullivan's there. Why is it Joe Missoula? And Joe Mazzulla, even though I have my issues with him at times, he's completely changed this offense around. Their offense has been tremendous, and it seems like you found the next really good Celtics coach at the age of 34. Now, he's still got to prove things and all that, but it's been impressive what he's been able to do. So Brad has proven that he can build around Tatum and Brown. I trust what Brad's doing, right? Now, maybe he can't rebuild an organization like Danny was an incredible drafter. He always got the big stuff right when you're talking about Tatum and we're talking about Brown. So we don't know if Brad Stevens can do that. But what we do know is you have your two-star players here, and Brad has built around these guys absolutely perfectly. Like, this is the perfect guy to be running this team because, of course, he coached them, he knows what they need, and they have all these two-way players, all these shooters that fit perfectly around Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So my approval ratings right now, my trust levels with the GMs in town, after I just outlined after all this, where the Belichick-Heim-Bloom thing is similar right now. And the Sweeney-Brad Stevens thing is similar right now. Number one on my list is Brad because Brad has put the perfect team around Tatum and Brown right now. Number two is Don Sweeney. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I trust Don Sweeney more than I trust Bill or Heim. I would pit, put Bill third on the list because I feel like he's had some good drafts lately. It's just with Bill, it's the Matt Patricia thing. And it's the lack of weapons thing for your young quarterback. That's where I'm at with the Bill situation. And then, of course, I have to put Heim on the list because I don't know if he can screw anything up as much as Heim has. You go all the way back to Mookie. We outlined some of the issues. I don't trust Heim Bloom whatsoever. I really don't. I don't trust him with the Devers situation. I don't trust him with anything. I don't trust Heim for a second. So that's my rankings in terms of my approval ratings with the GM. All right, what a night, man. I mean, awesome game for the Celtics. That was incredibly entertaining. We do have a lot of news with the Red Sox. 
We're going to chat with Pete Abraham of The Globe next. Now, just a note on that. We recorded with Pete prior to Carlos Correa getting that big deal with the San Francisco Giants. Neither of us thought that the Red Sox were actually going to land Correa anyway, but just a note so you're aware of that when you listen to the conversation I had with Pete Abraham. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Globe, of course, he covers the Red Sox. It is Pete Abraham. Pete, thanks so much for taking some time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Happy to do it. All right, so let's start with this. Like ordinarily, when teams are introducing a new player like Trey Turner with the Philadelphia Phillies, Andrew Bogarts, of course, we'll get to him in a second with the Padres. It's usually a celebration today. The Red Sox have a press conference to introduce their new closer, Canley Jansen, and all the questions were about Bogarts. It's kind of embarrassing for the team today, isn't it? Yeah, as unfortunately with a lot of things lately, they they don't seem to have a good pulse of what they're doing and this is what happens when you don't address the Bogart situation after he signed with the Padres. They should have done so immediately. Uh, they let it go for a couple of days. So, of course, it, it come, you know, it drifts into the Kenley Jansen press conference, which is kind of funny because he and Xander are pretty good buddies. Uh, they go back a long time. And, um, yeah, it's certainly not Kenley's fault. But, uh, that, you know, lately it seems like everything the Red Sox try to do, they find a way to mess it up. Yeah, it's unbelievable to me. And one of the interesting things that I took out of that press conference today is when Sam Kennedy was asked if he regrets the early negotiations with Bogarts going back to last offseason, he said, quote, I try not to look back. You can really harm yourself, your plan and harm decision making if you get caught up in regrets in the past or any type of fear of the future. What we're trying to do in the moment is make the right decisions. So, like, we can all understand why they wouldn't want to pay $280 million and give out an 11-year contract to Xander Bogarts. But what I just can't get around is why weren't they more willing? You had the article last week with your colleague, Alex Spear. Why weren't they more willing to go to that, as you guys pointed out, $150 million, which was basically the El Tuve deal with Xander Bogart? So that's the thing that I never understood. Yeah, I saw that comment from Sam. and That's almost like saying, you know, I, I drive through a stop sign every day and I hit the car in front of me, but I'm not going to think about that tomorrow because I'm just going to keep driving. Like, they, they you know, they... They, they screwed it up with Bogarts. They screwed it up with Mookie Betts. Uh, they screwed it up with John Lester. And given their track record, they're probably going to screw it up with Rafael Devers. I mean, the, the Braves have become the example of, you know, grab your young stars, put your arm around them, and say, hey, we're, we're going to make you part of this team for a long time. We're going to win the World Series multiple times. Uh, and get, get guys on board and being part of your organization. Make that their home. The, and the Red Sox have failed to do that with their star players. Now, I don't know if that's an aversion to long-term contracts, and that's just their, their policy now. They haven't come out and said that. But Xander wanted and told me this in spring training. He said, I want a fair deal. He didn't say I want to set any records. He didn't say I want to you know, get the biggest deal for a shortstop or anything like that. He said, I want a fair deal. And they offered him essentially one more year at $30 million on top of the $60 million he already had. There was no way that that was remotely close to a fair deal in the shortstop market. Uh, they had to know that, and it, it upset him. He, on opening day at Yankee Stadium, when asked about – he and Judge were both in the middle of contract issues on opening day at Yankee Stadium, and they were both pretty upset. Uh, that was the first time, I think, in the history of his time with the Red Sox, Xander expressed discontent at what was going on. 
And, you know, he went out and played the rest of the year. He was an all-star. He was a silver slugger. He improved defensively. He did all the things he had to do. I wrote a story in May quoting him saying, I would like them to come to me with a fair offer, and they didn't do it then either. So this is all a problem that they made for themselves. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because I remember the report that you had in May and thinking to myself, like, this does not seem like a typical Scott Boris client. Like, this is the last thing that Scott Boris wants, right? He wants him to get to free agency. So why do you think the Red Sox, after that, like, they, Xander basically gave them a mulligan. They screwed it up in the offseason, and he basically was saying, hey, here's another opportunity. I want to be a Boston Red Sox. This is where I want to be. So what do you think the... Holdup was for Haim Bloom. You said, I mean, the defensive numbers improved this year. Was that it? Was it the defense in the past? Like, why weren't they more willing to negotiate with Xander? The only thing I can come up with from reporting this story over the last week or so is that the Red Sox have a statistical model that they follow when it comes to evaluating players, how they're going to age. And that statistical model apparently did not reflect very well on Xander Bogart. And it maybe it, it showed him rapidly declining after a certain amount of time. I don't know what, it, you know, they, obviously they don't share that sort of data with us. But that's the only thing I can come up with, that, you know, their analysts decided this was not a guy worth the risk. And so they, you know, they got to a certain point with what they offered him, and they didn't go beyond that. They weren't even close. There were at least three or four other teams that were well ahead of them. Now, I don't think, you know, you would have to look at it and say, well, are those three or four other teams, is their data so much different that, you know, like which team is wrong? Is it the three or four teams that offered him over $200 million? Or is it the Red Sox who never get even close to $200 million? I guess only time is going to tell with that. But I got to tell you, man, the only teams I've covered in my career are the Mets, Yankees, and Red Sox. And one thing I've learned over time is when you find a guy who can play in those markets and can play for those teams and can handle all of the nonsense that comes with being a member of those teams, and it's a lot different than it is with other clubs, you don't let that guy go. If you find a guy who can do that, you cling to that guy with every ounce you have and you, and you let him play because he's going to influence the guys who come after him, and that's going to make your team a lot better in the long run. That's why the Yankees kept Jeter. That's why the Mets kept David Wright. That's why the Red Sox kept Dustin Pedroia. And this, this, this particular front office does not seem to adhere to that. Yeah, it's a great point, and I'm fascinated by like the model that they have because it would feel like to me, and I talked to Alex Cora in September about this when I had him on the podcast, is – like at first to me too, like I'm looking at it, like I'm, I'm digging into all these numbers. I'm like the expected slugging versus the actual slugging, like it's way off. But you look at it, he ends up with 71 ground ball hits, which is fourth in baseball. And one of the points that Cora made was that, well, he's been doing this for like four or five years. It isn't a coincidence at this point, it's a skill. And the other thing Cora brought up is he can hit it the opposite way, right? So that is a skill. And you would think, and I know like maybe they're caught up in the defense, but you would think now with the rules, with the shift, that that would favor Xander even more, that those numbers could even go up in the next couple of years or so. Yeah, and, and you know, I would wager that no one has seen Xander play in person more than I have. I, I've probably seen 90% of his games. I go on the road all the time. When there's a runner on third and, you know, two outs or one, one or two outs, he is a guy who will shorten up his swing and poke the ball to right field and drive the runner in from third. He happily takes the single to right field. He doesn't try to hit a double. He doesn't load up and try to hit a two-run homer. He very happily takes the run. He's a team guy in that respect. Not a lot of guys like that anymore because guys are paid based on traditional statistics when it comes to arbitration. Xander has never thought that way. Whoever taught him how to play baseball as a young guy taught him very well because that's the way he's always played. I don't know that that fits into models. You know, he's always done that, and you think you would learn from that, but he's a guy who is a winning player. He's always been a winning player in that regard. 
and I, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to find a shortstop, especially a premium position guy, whether a shortstop, center field, whatever it may be, who can succeed in Boston, be a leader in Boston, never get in any kind of trouble or anything, never say the wrong thing, who wants to make a quote-unquote fair deal for everybody. And then you say, well, you know, this is as far as we can go. It's nowhere near four, four or five other teams. Yeah, and one of the things that sticks out to me is the hands, right? I mean, this guy... I don't know if there's anybody in Major League Baseball, and Eck talks about it all the time on Nessie, and he used to call him the Gumby Man. Like, how he's able to hold up his swing all the time is fascinating to me. But in terms of the clubhouse, Pete, because you're around these guys, we know from the positional standpoint that this was the leader of the team. There was no question. Xander Bogart's like, what's the Boston Red Sox? So from a leadership void, who kind of takes that over? I, I have really no idea, because Trevor Story has been here one year, and he missed more than half the year with injuries. And he's not an outgoing personality kind of guy. Uh, Christian Vasquez, who does have an outgoing possibility uh, personality, he's gone. Um, Kike Hernandez, I think, would like to be. But he's only been here a couple of years. Last year, he missed much of the season. I think it's hard for a guy like that, you know, to, to step in and say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to kind of take that mantle. I'm sure he would like to. Rafi, who, who speaks English very well, except he doesn't do it uh, on, on television because he wants to make sure he says the right thing. He has been more of a you know, the little brother of the clubhouse to some degree. Now, he probably needs to step up. But at the same time, he's going to be wondering, am I coming back here next year? And what's going to happen with me? So that's an issue, too. I, I don't know, frankly, where they're going to get that leadership from, uh, whether it could be somebody that they sign or trade for who's a respected guy. Uh, that's that's a question. And that's, especially in places like Boston, that is an issue because there will come a time they're going to lose three or four in a row and someone needs to stand up and say, hey, you know, this is what we need to stop. We need to, this is what we need to do. Um, not call out your teammates, but, but stand there for the organization and say, you know, we need, to, we need to figure this out. And Xander understood that just like David Ortiz understood that, just like Dustin Pedroia understood that. And, and I don't know that they have somebody who can take that mantle next year. Yeah, and I do think it's tough, too. Like, we know that Chris Hill's been dealing with injuries, been around forever now. It feels like he's been a Red Sox, like, his whole career at this point. But he's always injured, and, and you need it to be a positional guy. It can't really it be— It can't be a pitcher, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. can't. Yeah. It's, got, it's got to be a position guy, so right. it's going to be interesting to see how they figure that out. Another thing that jumped out to me today about Sam Kennedy is he defended ownership. He said they're focused on the Red Sox, and they're committed to the Red Sox as they've ever been. They're hungry for a competitive future. So this is my issue with this. I don't know how you can say this when we know that they're in the middle of trying to sell Liverpool. So you can't tell us that they're invested as they've ever been. Now, they have the four World Series and everybody's grateful for that, For that, but there's no way that they're as invested as they've been in the past. Yeah, I guess my understanding with Liverpool is that they're, they're trying to bring in investors to Liverpool. They're not necessarily trying to sell it. I think it's more they're trying to leverage where they are and, and mm. get some more money into Fenway Sports Group. Now, they own Liverpool when they won in 2013. They own Liverpool when they won in 2018. It's possible for somebody to own two teams and, you know, manage to figure it And Liverpool's been very successful, too. So, yeah. it's not, you know, it's not like, you know, I, I don't think you wake up every day if you're the guy who owns both of those teams and says, well, who's playing the shortstop tonight and, you know, what's going on with the backup goalie in, in the EPL? I don't, you know, that's not what those guys do. Um, but Sean Henry has not spoken – other than a brief conversation with Alex Spear last year when he, when he, I think he ran into him in a hallway, um, he hasn't spoken to the media as a whole since a couple of days after the Mookie Betts trade. Uh, the same has been true of Tom Warner. And uh, Sam Kennedy, is, they, they've said we want Sam Kennedy to speak for us, and that's fine, but whatever percentage of Fenway Sports Group that Sam owns is pretty small compared to John and Tom. And at some point, you need the owners to say, 
you know, you need to be able to ask them, well, what is the plan here? You let Xander go, um, you know, you're cutting back on payroll, uh, you know, the Mookie Betts trade, you know, what, what direction is the franchise going? Can you share your vision with the fan base about what you're trying to do? And we haven't heard that. So without that, you know, we're kind of left to speculate. And, and that's not fair for anybody, but that's where it is. Yeah, it's in- it's going to be interesting too for the Winter Classic when the Penguins are playing the Bruins at, Fen- at Fenway Park to see the re- well if they're there. I mean, I don't know if they're there. For- I mean, I would imagine they'd have to be there, but that's going to be funny to watch that. What the reception's going to be like after everything that transpired this off season. I don't think we're going to see John in a Penguin sweater like, oh, let's go. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I don't think we're going to see that. But um, yeah, I mean, I I find the whole like, oh, they own other stuff. You know, therefore, they're not focusing on the Red Sox. Everybody who owns a Major League Baseball team owns something else. I, you know, it might not be a sports team, but it, they own something. Like, they're not making all their money off the, you know, the, 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 there's very few owners who only own their baseball team. I mean, the Steinbrenners right. own, a, you know, the Steinbrenners own a gigantic shipping company. You know, Steve Cohen is one of the, you know, the nation's biggest investors and, you know, uh, stuff like that. So I, I find the whole idea that, like, you know, somehow the rich guy can only focus on one thing at a time. I don't think that's true. But when they don't, when they never talk to the media, they never make themselves available, like Steve Cohen does, like Hal Steinbrenner does, like John Middleton does in Philadelphia, uh, like the Dodgers people have. Uh, you know, that's when these things come up. And how do you fight that if you don't if you don't come out and say, "Hey, here's what I here's what I think." Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a good point. And so now you look at it. We mentioned Mookie Betts. You mentioned earlier Xander Bogart. So these hometown guys that the Red Sox have let get away. And now there's Raphael Devers, who is completely in the driver's seat here because his camp knows that the Red Sox are in a position where this is not good with the fan base right now. And the Red Sox offered him, it was reported that Austin Riley type deal somewhere in the 212 to $220 million range. So do you think now with everything that's happened and Rafi having another good year, despite the injuries at the end of the season, are they going to be willing to go to 300 million? Because it doesn't really behoove Rafi to take anything less than that, considering he's where Mookie was. He's a year away. Yeah, and I think Rafi's also is a different equation, too, because you could envision Xander, and Xander had said he understood he was going to need to move off a shortstop after a while. And you can envision Xander be, being a first baseman or a third baseman, being pretty successful at it. He adds the ingredient of leadership and institutional knowledge. You know, that that's an important thing. You know, you could see Mookie aging pretty gracefully because he's a good athlete. He can move, you know, move around, play different positions. Rafi's a really hard guy to judge because – his value goes way down if he's not playing third base. It's, it's a, it's a hugely, it's a big advantage if you have a third base you can get like he does. It's not so much of an advantage if he's a first baseman or if he's a third, or if he's a DH. And I, you know, Rafi improved, I think, a little bit. You know, like like he needed to at third base last year, but by no means is he in, you know, the upper half of, of third base. But he's kind of right in that range, and you know, kind of in the middle, which is fine if he can stay there. But you know, he, he he's not, you know, he's the guy who's. Physical skills are related to his hitting more, I think, more than anything else. He's not necessarily a great base runner. He's not necessarily a great defender. He's a really good hitter. So I wonder how their aging curves are going to look on him. I wonder how much their philosophy on long-term contracts will be tested by him. And will they sit around in a room and say, you know, we can't let public perception run this move. We need to do what we think is right. And just because we, you know, people are angry at us with Bogarts, we're not going to give this guy a hundred more million than we think he's worth. Uh, but at the same time, if the Red Sox are running out of, you know, franchise players and they're trying to sell the most expensive tickets in baseball, I mean, how do you, how do you sell those tickets? And that's, that's probably a big issue. 
Yeah, and the other component to that, too, is if you just look at it, if they can't get something done with Raphael Devers this upcoming offseason, then you have to consider the fact, well, hey, do we have to trade him? Like, are you in the Mookie position where, hey, if you can't get Raphael Devers long term, do you actually have to move on from him? Well, that was, I think, one of the big mistakes of last season was that why did they, how do they not trade J.D. Martinez at the trade deadline? I don't understand how that made any sense at all. I can understand not trading Xander because you thought you could sign him and maybe that's worth whatever you were going to get for Xander to, to have the opportunity to continue to try to sign him. J.D., everybody knew J.D. was gone after the year. I don't know why they didn't trade him at the time. He never had any idea why they did either. That made no sense. Rafi, I think, is in the Xander boat. I don't think he would – unless you're so far apart and the team is in the last place at the trade deadline, I don't – I think they're going to hold him and, and try to go right to the end to try to make a deal with him. All right, so you were out there in San Diego, and, of course, this is when everything's going down with free agency, which I thought was really good for the sport that it was very active because we've seen the years past that hasn't been the case. But in terms of the perception of High and Bloom, what is the feeling you get around baseball? Is it like – what are the Red Sox doing? Is it that type of situation? Yeah, there's two things. It's kind of what are the Red Sox doing? We're not, you know, we're not clear about what they're doing. And the second part is that the Red Sox are a hard team to negotiate with. You hear that from agents. You hear that from other teams that they're very firm in what they want to do. There's not a lot of uh, discussion. You know, they'll say, well, this is what we think. And, you know, that it's kind of inflexible is what I've heard from agents and what I've heard from other teams. Um I mean, that doesn't mean it's impossible. You know, they signed Kelly Jansen. They they signed the the you know Yoshida. They made they made some good moves. I think Chris Martin's a good move. But in the bigger stuff, it seems like you know they decide. Well, here's what we're going to do, and it, they they don't really you know they're very firm with what they believe. And it, I thought it was really interesting that kind of the day they you know it became evident they weren't going to sign Xander. Their offer to Yoshida was so much more than what he thought he was going to get that he gave up 44 days of being in the open market in the posting system to sign with the Red Sox immediately. And then all other the other teams and the other analysts you heard from all said, yeah, we think he's like a $40 million player. And the Red Sox gave him 90. So if the Red Sox are right and that guy's, you know, Japanese Dustin Pedroia, they're going to look really smart. If that guy's just, you know, a league average outfield, then they're not going to look real smart. So – what they thought of Xander or what they thought of Yoshida was way different than what everybody else in the industry thought. Yeah, that that is compelling. And too, like the thing with Yoshida that jumps out to me, obviously the walk numbers are really good, which I think will carry over. We'll see if the strikeout numbers carry over as well. Obviously, he's going to be facing much more difficult pitching. But the other component is, well, if the power numbers don't, like if he doesn't bring the power that he had in Japan, well, then that is going to look like a really, really bad contract because you're paying. Basically, you gave him, what, 105 with the posting fee. And the offer that you made to Xander last offseason was four for 90. Like, that's going to look really bad for the Red Sox if this guy's power doesn't come over. Yeah, and from what I understand, and by no means am I any expert on this guy, I'm going by what I've read, what others have said. Um, he's not a good outfielder. He's, he's a left fielder who's going to, you know, doesn't have a strong arm. Uh, left field and Fenway will be good for him because the ball can only go so far before it hits the wall and you turn around and throw it in. So, um, and he's not a good base runner from what I understand either. He, he's a really good bat-the-ball hitter. Um, which is, that's a good component to have on your team. But if you've got a $90 million, like you said, if the power doesn't translate and you've got a $90 million single center, that's that's probably not great. All right, so one big pitcher still out there, Carlos Rodon. Apparently, he's looking for a seven-year contract. I mean, the numbers are great. I mean, if you look at him last year in terms of his numbers with the Giants, he was arguably the best pitcher in Major League Baseball. I mean, throughout the season, he was great. But 
The seven years are the thing that sticks out to me, Pete. I can't see the Red Sox pulling the trigger on this considering you have a team like the Yankees that's involved. I just don't see them getting uncomfortable with the deal in free agency, do you? And before he signed with the Giants, there were a lot of concerns about his shoulder. Yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, that he answered, right? I mean, he went out and he took a one-year deal to show what he was worth, and he sure did that. He's going to make a lot of money. But, you know, I've had people say to me, well, the Red Sox are just waiting. They're going to go sign Carlos Correa. I mean, if they didn't want to meet Xander Bogarts' price, what makes you think they're going to meet Carlos Correa's price? I mean, I don't, I just don't, I don't know. I, I, it would be, I think they have something up their sleeve that they're going to do, whether it's a trade or what, but I just, it's hard to see them giving what they've established as what they're comfortable with to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to throw up a whole bunch of money at, at Rodon. I mean, I'd be very surprised if that were to happen. Yeah, I would love Correa, but I'm with you. I don't see it happening, and it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do there because Correa, I mean, I would look at San Francisco for him considering they missed out on Aaron Judge. They're going to want to make a massive splash considering they're willing to pay that money to Aaron Judge. But in terms of the pitching with, say, Avaldi, who's still out there, the thing that concerns me about Nate is post-IL last year, his fastball dropped to 94.3 on average. The usage was way down. Opponents rating 310 off him. Pre-IL, that fastball is at 96.6. So I feel like from an upside play, we know how good he is. He's got a lot of stuff. He's a good big game pitcher. But from an injury perspective, the Red Sox would have sort of the most and the best information on Evaldi. What do you think the likelihood of a Evaldi return here is? Well, my understanding is that the uh, getting the qualifying offer has really hurt his market. That teams, mm. That teams like him but they're not sure they like him and also have to give up a draft pick and, you know, that all that. The other part of it is I think he, I think he came back last year wanting to prove to everybody that he could still pitch, that he, he wasn't going to go into the offseason on the IL. So he came back, even though his fastball wasn't what it was, just to show that, you know, hey, I'm fine. I can, I can get up on the mound. I can throw strikes and everything. You know, you don't have to worry about signing me. I would suspect when he gets to spring training, the velocity will be back. Um, he's the guy who keeps himself in really good condition. He's a guy who does a lot of work on, you know, the stuff that you, you know, the lower half to generate velocity. I would bet he'll come back wherever he is, whether it's the Red Sox or somewhere else. Uh, you might, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see the 9,900 Nate Evaldi again, but I think you can see the 96 and he throws five pitches. He's not a guy who relies only on his heater. I think he can, as he matures, he'll be able to get guys out. Now, I don't know if I'd want to sink five years into him, or whatever it might be, but I, I think he's worth, you know, two years, uh, maybe like a higher AAV than you might, you know, try to condense the, the deal. He has a home in Boston. His family really likes it here. He's comfortable with the pitching coaches. He's comfortable with Alec. Um, he does have some leadership qualities that I think they could use. I would bet they could make a deal with, with Nate. I don't know about Michael Walker. I suspect he'll, you know, he's kind of in the same boat to some degree, even though he didn't get the qualifying offer. Uh, but Nate would be a good step because I think that gives you some familiarity and it gives you, you know, at least just you can look at the rotation and say, OK, you know, we can we can figure this out if you get another guy in there. Yeah. And some depth, too, because these guys at the top, the sales, the Paxons of the world, we know there's obviously injury history there. Bayo's still a young guy. He could go through some up and downs next year. Pavetta's, you know, a bottom of the rotation type of guy. So it would make a lot of sense to bring him back. All right. So you mentioned trades as a possibility. So. I was looking at Tanner Houck, and he's still a long time away from being out of club control. I like him as a reliever, but you look at those starters numbers, second time through the order, opponents hit 333, and I'm wondering if they look at this, and they probably already realize that he's not a starter. They put him in the bullpen last year, and I know they said they were trying to stretch him out. I was wondering if that was attacked. This may be 
if they can get a team to bite and say, hey, we think maybe it's a bad team that says, hey, we think he can be a starter long term, that that may be a guy that they would consider moving. But I wonder what you would get back for him. Could you get back a frontline player for him? I, I, I mean, could you get back a, a starting second baseman for Tanner Houck? I don't think it's a good could. point. You know, I think they have some redundancy in their organization with with shortstop. If you think Meyer is your shortstop, you know, maybe you say, okay, we can we can trade uh, Mikey Romero. Or um, they're, they're, I think there's things that they could do, but you know, I don't know that they have anybody on the forty man other than you know the guys that you would clearly think that they would keep. Who won the 40-man is such a great, you know, you're not going to trade Garrett Whitlock. I don't think, you know, there's there's no other guys there. You say, well, this guy's going to bring back, you know, we can package five of these guys and get back a, a, a second baseman or a pitcher or something. I don't know who those guys would be. Uh, there's a lot of talk that, you know, that they were unhappy with Verdugo at the end of the year, that they talked about him needing to come back in better shape and, and kind of be more committed to baseball. Other teams recognize that, too. I don't think he's bringing back any kind of frontline players, so. Uh, I think the, the trade the trade would have to come out of their system, and they've done a good job of stockpiling talent in their system. Um, how many trades that could result in, I don't know, but it does seem like that's going to be an avenue they're going to have to use because every day now the free agent market's getting a little thinner than it was the day before. Yeah, it's a great point on Verdugo, too, because that's been a real disappointment. I mean, the defensive numbers were bad last year, and I know everybody likes to reference his expected numbers and all that, but it's like, well, look at his ground ball rate. It's through the roof. It's over 45%. He's hitting all these rockets, but they're all into the ground. I never see him hitting for power, so I don't know what you could get back for him. Pete, before I let you go, I'm interested in the bullpen here because Chris Martin, he is like the opposite of Jake Diekman, or as I call him, Jake Walkman. He does not walk anybody, and he's an established guy. Kenley Jansen, now we'll see what happens with the pitch clock situation with him, but this is an established reliever, number one in the National League in saves last year. And we've seen Bloom in the past where he bets on stuff in the bullpen, right? The horizontal break with Diekman on a slider. And even to a lesser extent, a guy like Matt Strom, you're betting on the stuff because he didn't have this great resume. And he worked out pretty well for the Red Sox. But my whole point with this is, do these two signings signal some sort of a pivot with the bullpen where they're going after established arms? And do you think Cora had any say in that, considering he's the guy that had to try to patch it together all last year? Yeah, that was that was going to be my answer to your question. So I, I think in an in a ideal utopian baseball world, GMs would, would never think about a closer. They would just want to get stuck guys and put them in the bullpen, which is pretty much what Tampa Bay does. But if you're the manager of a big league team, uh, one thing you figure out pretty quickly is your relievers crave uh, knowing what their role is. They want to walk out every day going, I'm going to face probably these three guys in the seventh inning or, you know, what, you know there, there's four guys on the other team that they're going to want me to face, you know, righty on righty, whatever it may be. And last year, they never had that. They, they, they went the entire year. You know, we would sit there going, I wonder who's going to close tonight. Well, maybe it's Hogg. Maybe it's going to be, you know, who, you know, it could be anybody. And I, I think well, I think they had, what, like nine guys get saved last year or something like that? I mean, it wasn't great. I mean, some of that just stuff happens. But, you know, they never really established the closer. So I'm sure at some point, Cora said, you know, you go do all the other stuff you want to do. Get me a closer. Get me a major league closer. And then you can start out and say, okay, Kenley's got the ninth inning. All right. How is going to have the eighth inning? All right. Well, we got Chris Martin. He'll have the seventh inning. And you can start to, you know, you build backwards. And that is going to be really important this year because you have no idea how many innings sales going to give you. You have no idea how many innings Paxton is going to give you. You have no idea how many innings Garrett Whitlock is going to give you coming off a of hip surgery. They are going to need to have a bullpen lined up from the fifth inning on a lot of times, at least in the first half of the year. And if you go into every day going, 
yeah, well, it could be any one of these four guys closing. That's a hard thing to do. But if you start out the day saying, all right, here's the here's the ninth, here's the eighth, here's the seventh, it's a hell of a lot easier to get the fifth and sixth straightened out if you're the manager. And I think that's probably what led to Kenley Jansen. I, I used to think the like, saves are overrated, closer, it's all a bunch of nonsense. Put the best guy in the best situation. It, it just doesn't work. Relievers need to know when they're going to go in the game. And they, they want to be able to look at film and, and know their role and, you know, tell the manager, like, hey, I gave you three days today. I'm off tomorrow. I'll come back Friday, whatever it is. And when you can't do that, it really it really wrecks the whole, you know, the, the relievers all are in the clubhouse arguing about, you know, what's going on. And it becomes a big mess. And that's what they had last year. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch because – Look, there's been obviously most of the stuff with the Red Sox this offseason has been negative, but it's going to be really weird for Cora if it actually works out this way, right? Like he actually has a competent, like if Schreiber's the guy that he was last year and Jansen gets back to the guy that we've seen in the past and Martins, who he is based on his resume, like the Red Sox bullpen could actually be good. And even like when they made the run in 2021, Pete, it was Alex Cora's pulling Pavetta in the last game against the Nationals. He closed out the season to clinch the playoff spot. And that was the regular season. So this is going to be like, a different type of life for Cora next year if that actually works out. Now, I'm sure he'd like to have Bogarts on the team, but this is going to be crazy. I mean, I remember thinking when Pavetta came into that game, like, they are going to give away the season because this guy's going to give up a 900-foot home run <laughs> to Juan Soto. But you know what's funny? I think Pavetta would be a really good reliever. He's Yeah. If you cut down on the number of pitches he throws, let him work out, you know, let him throw his fastball, he's got the mentality to just go up there and go, like, screw you, I'm going to throw you strikes. I think he would be a really a real asset in the bullpen. I would love to see them get enough relievers where you can make Pavetta a string man, give him maybe, you know, eight, ten starts over the course of the year when you need him, and then have him be like a, you know, four or five out guy on those days when Sale only gives you four innings. I think Pavetta would be awesome in that role. Um, he's competitive. He's athletic. He, there's a lot of things about him that he could handle that role. And I like him a lot better than if he's your number five starter, but th- I guess that's a different thing. But it's, um yeah, Cora, I think, had been an advocate of, you know, let's just have everybody as a reliever. But I think the more he manages, he's come to realize you need to have that structure in the back end of the bullpen. Yeah. Pavetta, I mean, remember that in 2021, he became like a fan favorite in the postseason. He was coming out. He had like the primal screams. I mean, that was a ton of fun to watch. I'm with you. I I think he would be great. I really do. I think he would be great at it. He's got that like kind of kooky mentality where (laughs) you you could bring him in with like a runner on second to face a really good hitter. And Pavetta would be like, I'm better than that guy. You know, like he would, that's how he would think. And yeah, yeah Pavetta's he, a character. Like he, he, he hates us. He hates the media. It's hilarious. But um, he's, he's, like, he's super competitive. I think he would be awesome in that spot. Yeah. I remember too, like during the regular season two years ago when the Red Sox beat the Mets one to nothing. And he said, like, he believes he's better than Jacob deGrom. That's like the mentality he has to have. So oh, no, hey, he if, would be, yeah. If they can awesome. add an, if they can add another starter too, like that would give you the leeway to push Pavetta to the bullpen. We'll see if the Red Sox do that. All right, that is Pete Abraham from the Globe. Pete, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it, and hopefully we'll catch up before the season again. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Pete Abraham from the Boston Globe. It's going to continue to be an interesting offseason for the Red Sox as we go on here. All right, we do have time for a call, so let's get to that. The number is 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian, this is Nick from Andover, Mass. Uh, I just wanted to ask about Kendrick Bourne. Uh, I know this has been a storyline all year, but I feel like last night the only reason he got any time to play was because of Myers and Parker's injuries, but he threw two key blocks. He had a couple really nice catches. Um, yeah, I just want to talk about Bourne and maybe just other times uh, when the Patriots coaching staff is maybe kind of sat players that could actually help the team. Thanks again. I appreciate the call. Well, I can think of one very famous example, Malcolm Butler in the Super Bowl. Still have no idea why he didn't play in that game. I mean, you think about it. At halftime, don't you come to the realization like, hey, we should probably put the Butler guy in. He played 98% of the snaps. So that's definitely an example of that. The Bourne thing, I'll still never understand. I'll never understand it because Bourne had really good chemistry with Mac last year. Obviously, they have so many guys right now in front of him in the depth chart. You're right. He wouldn't have been playing if it wasn't for all the injuries. So I don't have a good answer for you. I believe that he should be playing more. I've said that since we were in the offseason and he's not getting the playing time. So I don't have a good answer for you. Quite frankly, I don't think the Patriots have a good answer for you based on what Kendrick Bourne did last year and based on the chemistry that he had with Mac Jones. Another thing that I don't like is you draft a receiver Tyquan Thornton in the second round, who's the fastest guy at the combine, the Patriots need team speed and they barely use Tyquan Thornton. Like it's great that Marcus Jones is getting out there on the field and he's making big plays. And of course he had the only big play two weeks ago in that game against the Buffalo Bills, but you draft this guy with speed, you got to start developing him. Like the Patriots from an organizational standpoint need Tyquan Thornton to hit. He should be on the field more because it's not like any of these other receivers with the exception to Jacoby Myers have proven they need to be on the field. Does Devontae Parker need to be on the field? No. Does Nelson Aguilar need to be on the field? Fuck no. The guy can't catch the damn ball. He had two drops the other night. So why can't he play more? I I don't understand that whatsoever. All right. If you want to get a call and remember to leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172. All right. So we talked about the Celtics earlier. I did want to mention the Bruins win as well, because this is a fun night. You watch the Bruins. The Bruins basically end at 956. And then you get the Celtics starting right after that. And it was a crazy game against the Islanders, of course. They go to overtime. They end up winning 4-3 in the shootout. The shootout goals from DeBrusque and especially Pasternak were just absolutely filthy. The pot, I love Pasta. His, I know the numbers aren't great in terms of the shootout, but just sort of lazily going down there, sort of distracting the goalie. And then he comes up with just an incredible snipe. And Pasta has been so good for this team. But those were two really unbelievable shootout goals for both those guys, DeBrusque and Pasta. So The thing that impressed me about the Bruins is the Islanders took it to them early. They controlled play. If if you look at the Corsi rating, which accounts for shots on goal, block shots and shots wide of the goal, it was 25 to 14 in favor of the Islanders in that first period. But you only gave up the nine shots because the Bruins were so good in this game in terms of blocking shots. They ended up blocking 22 shots in this game. You fell down early one to nothing after the Barzell goal, who we mentioned earlier in terms of guy the Bruins could have had. But you still came out of that first period, even though it felt like you were being outplayed with a two to one lead, right? They just found a way. Now, the power play we know has been so good this season. 
and DeBrusque gets the tip off the shot from Pasternak. And then right after that, DeBrusque, and give him credit, I mean, his speed created this play, but of course he hits, he ends up just in a situation where it goes off Bailey into the net, but he created that play. DeBrusque created that play by his speed. So you give DeBrusque credit because he was aggressive there and he got to the net and he created a play and you take it. The Bruins go to the first intermission with the 2-1 lead, even though it felt like the Islanders were the superior team in that first period. And you think about it too now, DeBrusque is on pace for over 60 points, career high is 43. He's completely been a different player this year. And the Bruins, again, they kill all three penalties in this game. And Forbert scored shorthanded. He's been great on the penalty kill too, especially since he's come back from the injury. And DeBrusque, a beautiful feed. He just leaves it for Forbert, who ends up scoring there. And the penalty kill, like we talk so often about how great the offense has been for the Bruins this year and the defensemen getting involved more and the fact that they're number two on the power play this year. But how about the penalty kill? They're first in the NHL at 85.4%. And in this game tonight, it was critical to kill those three penalties, of course. But this team has really, when you look at it, they always find a way. And this is a different type of style for them tonight, playing against this Islanders team. And they find a way to get it done each and every night. It just feels like. The Bruins aren't out of this when they go down in games. Tonight, they were up 2-1. The Islanders come fighting back, and the Bruins are the team that has better opportunities late in this game where, as good as the Islanders were in the first period, the Bruins outplayed them in the third period, and I felt like the right team won. Now, that was a great battle tonight and all that, but just another gutty win. That's how I describe it tonight for the Bruins. That was a gutsy win. All right, man, what a night. I feel like right now it's 1.28 in the morning. I feel like I could be up all night after the Celtics game, which was absolutely insane. After that Bruins game as well. After all the stuff we got going on with the Patriots, man, like I don't want to go to bed right now. I mean, that, that was just an insane night of sports. Unbelievable. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days.